1960, a group of Southeast Asian countries came together in Guadalumpur to standardize the rules and settle on a name for an ancient sport, Sepak Takra. The sport began gaining popularity in the United States, mainly within the Lao and Hmong diaspora communities in places like Northern California and Minnesota during the 1980s. Jeremy Merkin began playing with the Lao Americans at an apartment complex in Oakland, California. He would soon find himself representing the United States on the world stage and ultimately take the reins as head coach for Team USA. In November of 2022, he and six players traveled to Korea for the ISTAF World Cup and made history by upsetting Iran and bringing home gold medals in the 3v3 and 4v4 Division I categories. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of C4 Podcast, Southeast Asian Athlete Achievement Through Adversity. My name is Coach Andetka, and I'm here with my co-host, John Messina. Today, we have the USA coach of the Sepak Takaw uh, national team. So I'm going to have John introduce our guest. Yeah. Well, first of all, Jeremy, we want to congratulate you. We have Jeremy Merkin on today, um, right back from Korea, bringing home a gold medal with Team USA. So that's that's really exciting. Two gold medals, sorry. Two gold medals and two different, no um, two different. Uh, there's different, I guess, uh, events with 3v3, 4v4, all that. But yeah, congratulations, you and the whole team did a, did a great job. I know a lot of people were following it on Facebook and stuff. So we're excited to have you on. Um, so we'll jump right into things, Jeremy. Before we uh, kind of go through your background, how you got into the sport, though, can you just tell us a little bit about the sport and the history of it? Yeah, sure. So the sport that we're talking about today is Sepak Takra. I think it's best uh, viewed as a fusion of the bump set spike strategy of volleyball played over a badminton court and a badminton net, so five feet high. But then it has uh, no no arms and no hands are allowed. So you have to use head, knees, and feet in order to bump set and spike the ball and uh, ultimately to score points and play defense. So it's kind of a fusion of those sports along with some martial arts kicking because we're trying to spike the ball with momentum as opposed to just pass the ball over. So there's some aerial acrobatics involved as well. Um, the sport many different countries um, kind of claim the sport as their own, but it's generally known the sport originates in Southeast Asia. It has roots hundreds and hundreds of years back in places like <clears throat> Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, even Japan and China had cultural games. So it kind of, it started in a completely different form, a cooperative kicking game just to pass time, keep a people active and moving around. And then over time, um, that sort of developed into something um, more like a court sport. And it wasn't until the mid 1900s when uh, Thailand started to codify a set of rules and kind of make the game more standardized. And then in 1960, that's when um, a group of different Southeast Asian countries got together and they decided officially to all play by the same set of rules they come up with a standardized name 
they took the Malaysian word sepak, uh, which means kick, and the Thai word takra or takra, which means rattan ball or woven ball. And so they put that together, sepak takra, kick ball. And that's what we have today is the sport, um, which is now kind of made its way around the world. Now tell us about the ball. Like what, what is it made of again? Like what, what would you say the material is? I should have one with me. I didn't think of that. So ah. it used to be a material called rattan, which is kind of like a, a reed. Um, it's very popular for things like patio furniture, right? It's um, a weed that kind of grows uh, a reed growing by the rivers. That's very strong, but it's flexible as well. And so uh, it used to be this woven material, interwoven fibers. Um, now, however, see that ball couldn't be standardized. So every ball was a little bit different. It would have different play and different reactions when it was kicked or touched. So uh, sport, um, a company in Thailand, Marathon, has created a standardized ball, which is more like interwoven plastic. Okay. It's quite heavy, but um, it sort of looks like a wiffle ball. It's got these open holes so you can see through the ball. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just got these interwoven fibers uh, of plastic, and it weighs about 180 grams, and it's a little bit larger than a softball, but smaller than a volleyball, and it's okay. bright yellow. Um, so right. when the ball's moving at fast speeds, you know, you see it. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, yeah, thanks for the background on the sport. We'd love to kind of start with your own journey into the sport. Um, so maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeremy your upbringing, where you grew up, all that, and and then we'll kind of roll into how you got into the sport. Okay, so I'm a California kid, um, born and raised. I lived there for the first 18 or so years of my life. Growing up, I played all sorts of sports. I was really, um, always loved movement, but I didn't play, you know, traditional American sports necessarily. I didn't play baseball, basketball, soccer, or football. I was more into the fringe games. I played golf. I played bowling. I was pretty excellent at ping pong and also played tennis from quite a young age. So I had some sort of background in movement and kind of eye-hand coordination, understood my body in space. Um, when I moved away to college, I started being intrigued by hacky sack, something I hadn't really done before. And so I would play that game with my friends. And that turned into something more than just kind of circle kicking with some buddies. I ended up starting to play that game professionally, if you could say. There is an actual sport that they created from the game of hacky sack, which is also a net sport where you pass this, uh, not soft ball, it's like a hard packed ball, similar in size to a tennis ball. And it's, it's a foot only sport, also played over a badminton court. So I got very into that game. It caused me to move <laughs> to a city where I could learn to, to play from some of the best players in the United States. So I moved from the Santa Cruz area, a little further up north to the Bay Area, Oakland. Spent about 10 years in Oakland where I got to train with a chaos footbag club. And while I was there, I sort of... I decided that I wanted to leave my mark on the sport, and that was learning some more acrobatic styles of spiking or passing the ball over the net. And I wanted to do things that other people in my game couldn't do. 
And so the leader of my club, who was not only playing footbag, but he was also uh, playing Takra as well. He said, well, if you want to get better at this game with a small ball, you have to learn to kick this other ball, which is bigger, heavier. It's a more acrobatic and intense game. So he took me to this kind of underground uh, Takra location in Oakland. It was only about two miles away from where I was living at the time. But, you know, you could walk by the street and you'd never know it was there. I was kind of in, a, in an apartment complex in the courtyard. And this entire building was lived in by some Laotian refugees who had come, you know, around the time of the, the Vietnam War when things were unstable and unsafe in Laos. U.S. brought them over and kind of there was like 20 dudes all living in the same area and they would play every day in their in their courtyard, set up a net and have some fun. So I got introduced to these guys and they, you know, from day one, they said, OK, you're on the court. I was like, I don't even know what, how you play the game. This doesn't matter. Just jump on and learn. So I went there for about nine years, not every day, but as many times a week as I could after work. And eventually, uh, I had these two competing interests. I wanted to get better at Takra, but I was using Takra as a platform to improve um, at this other game, Footbag. And I was still traveling all around the world um, to compete in this other, this other sport. So at some point, um, I was made aware that the captain of the U.S. National Sepak Takra team was uh, accepting applications for people who might want to join the team. And so three guys from my hacky sack or footbag club, we were all training quite often at the Takra spot. And we all decided, you know what, we'll just, let's all three make an application. You be the server, you be the spiker, this guy, you be the setter. And we'll just see what happens. You know, it'll be fun. And sure enough, our names got selected, not necessarily because we were the most talented, but because we all lived in the same area. We could train together. And importantly, we lived only about 75 minutes from the captain of, of the U.S. national team and where he lived. And so he was able to kind of take us under his wing and train us. And then when we weren't with him, we could train ourselves. So we did that for about seven or eight months with some problems along the way. Uh, one guy ended up blowing out his knee and he ended up not being able to play at all. So I was training as the spiker and that was the position that I was working towards. Um, another guy who did not hurt himself was working as uh, playing as the setter or excuse me, the, the server. So when the guy who blew out his knee, he left the team and the captain joined and he said, okay, I'm going to, we'll just be a three man team. And um, yeah, so I spent the next, you know, seven or eight months of my life training, doing a lot of individual work, learning to kind of just getting as many touches on the ball as I could so that I wouldn't make a fool of myself <laughs> overseas because I had no idea what the level of competition was going to be like. Um, so yeah, I took the training super seriously. I worked harder than everybody around me. I was always training for a purpose. And uh, I think it was 2000 and let's see, I have a medal next to me here. 2012, I believe, was the first time I went overseas. I competed at what's known as the, the World Championships of Takra, which is called the King's Cup, typically held in Bangkok, Thailand. 
And um, yeah, I went there two years in a row uh, and competed as a player. And then we got an opportunity to compete in a different series of international tournaments called the ISTAF Super Series. ISTAF stands for International Sepoktakraw Federation. There was a, a kind of a live televised series of tournaments. There were about seven or eight of them that happened in various uh, cities and countries all in Southeast Asia. And the USA got invited, we qualified to compete in that um, circuit of tournaments, only the top 12 teams in the world were invited and, and we got the invitation. Um, and so I played about three or four tournaments in that series as well. So what was like, where was everybody from? Were they from just like the Oakland area that was on that national team where you competed or were they kind of all over, spread out all over the country? So for that first year or two, 2011, 2012, mm. Uh, the captain had selected people only from the California region. So we had some players from Sacramento, from Fresno. Those are hot spots for people who are Hmong. Okay. Um, and there are a lot of Tucker players in those communities. And then my core group of guys who were either white or Laotian in the Oakland area. Okay. okay. And so we, you know, we teamed up in various groups to compete and go overseas in 2011, 2012. But when we had the opportunity to compete in the ISTAF Super Series, that was like a, a higher level of competition. There were no weak teams. Uh, at, at the King's Cup, every country who wants to participate can, right? So you've got 30 countries, and some of them aren't very good. Um, at the ISTAF Super Series, none of those weaker teams were even allowed to go to the events. It was only the top teams. So the caliber of competition was extremely high. And so we needed to to reach out a bit further. So we brought players from Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota is considered to be the, the highest quality city in terms of, of players, the most players and also the strongest level right now anyway. And so we, we were a fusion of people from California and Minnesota um, when, we, when we traveled. Okay. Yeah, that, that kind of makes sense because, you know, if you look at where the large Lao Hmong populations are, that Northern California, Fresno, Sacramento, San Francisco Bay Area, and Minnesota are absolutely the concentration. So it makes sense that the sport kind of evolved out of those cities and a lot of the great players came out of there. Um, well, so what would you say as a player, what was your proudest moment in the sport? Well, it'll sound strange, but... Um... My proudest moment was winning third place at the one of the ISTAF Super Series tournaments, uh, which was held in Bangkok, Thailand. Um, because of the level of competition, being able to place in the top three at that event was more special than winning a gold or silver medal at um, the King's Cup. Um, we really had to work hard. Um, so this match that where we ended up, uh, we played a semifinal match on live TV, which was broadcast to like 50 million people all over Europe and Southeast Asia, maybe more, maybe, maybe it was way more than that. I had people who were watching me in Finland who had no idea what they were watching, but then they saw my face and they knew me from the other sport that I played. And they were like, you know, messaging me real time, like, what the heck are you doing on TV? Anyway, so... What made it so special was that we were competing against Iran, um, which is a team that has better training, government support, um, 
you know, they have a league across there where they're developing top talent. And, you know, the U.S. and, and Iran are enemies, at least politically. And so there aren't very many opportunities to for those teams to meet on a field of play. And it was super intense. I mean, we were heckling each other. There was a lot of anger, but there was also, you know, genuine fun and joy. And so I, I feel like our team wasn't supposed to win that match. And we did. Wow. We came out on top on the, in the third set. And I think I just haven't had another sports moment like it. It was so intense and I was so relieved and excited. And I was playing in that match with um, a kid who was only 17 years old. So it was a spiker um, whose family I went and lived with to try to convince their father that this kid was good enough to travel the world with me and compete for the United States. And the father was very hesitant. I had to build trust. And he finally said, my kid's never left the U.S. Maybe he's never traveled out of Minnesota. You have to get him a passport. Um, and then you have to take care of him. And so I was like his dad, right? I was, I was 30, 31. And this kid was only 17. He wasn't even out of high school. Um, so we two traveled along with the captain. And we just spent like, you know, five or six weeks overseas. And that was the culminating event of this, the super long trip. And it was amazing to win and everybody saw it. And yeah, just the most happy I've ever felt on a, on a court. That's exciting. Is he still on the team today? That young man? Yes, sort of. He oh. blew out his knee. Oh, ouch. Um, so a few months ago, he was playing in a tournament and uh, he hurt his knee. So he is requiring some surgery, but he will be back and he'll play again. Um, so he'll be back soon. That's how I should say it. All right. That's yeah, that's good. Well, so, you know, you, you sound like you had a great playing career. Uh, and then at some point you transitioned into coaching. Tell us a little bit about that, how you made the transition and how you became the team USA head coach. Yeah. Well, I will admit I was not appointed head coach necessarily. I sort of self appointed, um, the reason I'll say it like that is because so over the COVID years, Takara, international Takara was kind of dormant. And so out of nowhere, a few months ago, we got an invitation from the International Takara Federation that said, you know, your organization is invited to um, select a team to come compete at the 2022 World Cup event, which will be held in Korea. And you're allowed to bring six players, one team manager, and one head coach. Well, we didn't have a head coach. We didn't have a team manager. We'd just sort of been playing stateside here, doing informal tournaments, betting matches, you know. And I've got a young baby and a wife now. So I've sort of taken a step back from playing. And I've, I've kind of taken on the responsibility of helping to organize events and um, connecting people, trying to find sponsorship, find money for the sport so that we can continue our endeavors. And so we decided when we got that letter that we were going to try and put together a delegation of all people, all the people we could find that wanted to go, which was all six players, the team manager and the coach. Um, and the 
because of my, you know, 10 or so years playing all around the country, all the different top players who we asked, hey, would you be interested? Do you have the money? Do you have the time? Can you get off work? Uh, six of them said, yeah, we could make it happen. But who's going to go with us? We didn't really have an answer for that question. So I said, well, I looked at my wife and I said, can I go to Korea? And she said, how long? I said, okay, eight days. That's all I need. Give me eight days. And she said, okay, I'll let you go. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll either be your team manager or I can try to be your coach. And uh, they said, we want you to coach us. And I said, are you sure? <laughs> and they said, yeah. And they, they wanted me because I know the game. I've played it, right? I got to a fairly high level. I've had experience in international tournament play. So I know the way that it, it works. And it's very different from how we play in the US. Things here are very informal. And over there, there's a lot of tradition, a lot of, of rules to follow. And so they needed somebody that could guide them. And also because I'm very analytical, I teach for a living. Um, and I've just watched enough so that I felt like I would be able to help them if we got stuck, if we were failing at some part of the game. You know, I felt like I would be able to help coach us through those moments, call timeouts, um, and sort of just, it w I wasn't going to be some random person that they didn't trust. I was going to be, you know, their closest Takra associate with whom they would be okay. You know, they'd be okay if I yelled at them. They'd be okay if I freaked out and broke a clipboard or if I was calm and, you know, just letting them play. That was going to be okay for them. So they sort of selected me and, um, I did my best to learn kind of on the fly how to be a coach. I, I spoke to some of my coaching friends all around the world, talked to somebody in Thailand, somebody in Malaysia, and I said, what do I need to, to be prepared for? And I got a little feedback and I, I adopted it and, you know, just did my best. Oh, yeah. You and the team, you know, you had an incredible run there in Korea. Tell us a little bit about the, what you did in Korea and then maybe just give a shout out to some of those six players. Absolutely. So there were both men's and women's events, but in the United States, we don't have a strong contingent of female players. We're working on that. So we only brought uh, male athletes and we were invited to compete in two different formats. One was a three on three format and the other was a four on four. Um, so we brought six players, five of whom were able to compete in three on three. We were able to use all six of our players in the four-on-four -four format, right? Four on the court, two subs. We were really concentrating on three-on-three -three because that's how we play in the United States. We'd never actually even trained four-on-four -four before. It's kind of a newer development in the sport. And we hadn't yet had the opportunity to play it internationally. So we were really focusing on developing the players for the three-on-three -three event. And... Well, so we went there and we, we competed in the group stage where we competed against three other, uh, sorry, two other nations in a round robin style. And we got out of our group stage without having lost a set. So we were, we were undefeated in the group stage and didn't lose a set in the process of winning those matches. We advanced to the semifinal. Again, we defeated, I think it was 
Bangladesh that we played. Um, we beat them in straight sets 2-0. And we advanced to the final where we played Iran again. Uh, so this is this is the theme here. Um, and so it was another, you know, televised match. It well it was live streamed this time. And pretty high intensity. We were playing again against a team that had better coaching. I'm not going to say better coaching. They had somebody that was paid to be their coach. Mm. Um, and they had a team manager. And uh, the server on this team was like six foot three or six foot four. He was huge. And in comparison, our server is like five, three. So there was like a foot of difference in, in terms of the height. And so when this guy was serving to us, his foot was touching almost eight feet high. Um, and he, you have to serve with one foot planted on the ground, but he would basically do a standing split. And so his kicking leg was at least a foot or a foot and a half above his head. And he was, he was basically spiking the ball down at us as his serve, which was super intimidating. Uh, but somehow uh, we were able to receive his serve and we were very strong mentally. We played fairly mistake-free, um, but the biggest asset to us in that match was our server. His name is Kerr Cha, and he's, he's from Minnesota. He's probably the best player in the United States. I think nobody has his skill set right now. And, um, man, he won a lot of points for us on the serve. Typically, when a team serves it's a disadvantage to be serving. The receiving team often is able to bump set and spike the ball to win a point. So the goal when you're serving is sort of to try to steal one of the three points to that, that you're serving to the other team. Because after my team serves three, then the other team will serve three back to me. So I'm trying when I'm receiving the serve, I'm trying to win all three points, bump set and spike the ball. When I'm serving, my team is just trying to get one of those three so that every six points we're winning four out of six that will allow us to kind of open up a lead over time in the game which is played to 21 points but Kerr in this match he was able to score almost half of our team's total points just by his serve he was getting aces or serving unreturnable balls so we were able to win something like you know 21 14 21 12 um, which was very unexpected against a team that I thought was probably skill-wise, individually, they had better skill than we did. They were all more skilled. They could jump higher. They could serve harder. They were more consistent. But we won because in that moment, in that high-pressure moment, when they knew they were expected to win, but we knew we could win, we, we just played better. We, I guess we wanted it more. We didn't allow ourselves to get frustrated. So yeah, we, we came away with a straight set victory. So we completed the entire three-on-three -three portion of the tournament without losing one set. Wow. And that was super intense. That was like, I was extremely pleased. Uh, I was yelling from the sidelines the whole time, you know, pumping them up, but also letting them know when they were not listening to me. Um, so yeah, that was a, that was a great moment. Um, one of our players the day before the tournament started actually got injured. One of our spikers, probably, well, definitely our most consistent spiker and the one with the most international experience. He actually almost fractured his, uh, a bone in his arm. 
his foot got caught in the net. He fell super hard on his elbow and his elbow kind of swole, swelled, swelled up to the size of an orange. <laughs> and he was supposed to start for us. He was supposed to be playing. Um, and so we, we benched him. We took him off the roster and we subbed in this new player from Iowa. His name is Chris Moo and he is Karen. So in, there were no Laotian players on our team this year. It was a combination of Hmong players, three of them, and three Karen players. Karen people are um, one of the minority groups from Myanmar or Burma. And right now it's very dangerous. It has been for about the last 10 or 15 years for Karen people to be living in uh, Myanmar. And so kind of like the Laotian people and the Hmong people, they uh, were refugees, they moved to Thailand, um, got housed in camps, and eventually through petitioning for refugee status, uh, many of them ended up in the United States and they were playing this game over there, so they brought it with them. So we had three Karen people on our team and three Hmong people. And uh, yeah, so we put this new guy in, Chris Mu, who historically has played as a server, but we already had our server, Kerr, so we needed him to train for a different position, which he did, and he got pretty good. And so he helped us win. Uh, and then our feeder for the three-on-three, -three, we actually had two feeders. Um, both of them are also Karen. One guy from Indiana, Fort Wayne, Indiana, his name is Jan, Jan So or Yan. And uh, we had another feeder named Ure, Ure. And he was from Omaha, Nebraska. And so those two feeders um, kind of subbed in and out, helping each other. When one person was hot, they stayed in. When they were a little shaky, we subbed them out. And together they worked um, to kind of support our team. The feeder is the, the one player on the team who can kind of control the action. Um, kind of like a quarterback in football, the quarterback chooses who he's going to pass to. And the feeder chooses where they're going to set the ball. And so the spiker just does whatever the feeder directs them or commands them to do. And so the feeder is actually probably the most important spot on the court. And those guys did a really good job. Neither one of them had ever played internationally before. Uh, so there was a lot of nerves in our first couple of matches. We won those matches because we were the better teams, but there was a lot of learning that took place in those first couple. So anyways, those were, I introduced four of the players there. We had one backup server who didn't play at all during the three-on-three -three competition. His skill set was more um, appropriate for four-on-four. -four. So we played him for four-on-four. -four. That player's name was John Tao, also from Minnesota, and he's Hmong. And then, miraculously, four days after his injury, even though he was still wearing like a, a sling or some sort of a soft brace, uh, our other spiker... Jim Tao, who's from California, he's Hmong. He said, coach, I'm ready to play. I want you to try me out. I want to I wanna see if I can do something on the court to help the team. And I said, are you crazy? Are you really, you know, because he does like a backflip style roll spike. And so for him to kick the ball, he, he flips. That's the only style he's, he really knows. And that requires sometimes that you put your hands down and you support yourself so that you don't crash. And he said, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to give it my, my best. So I put him in. Uh, after the three-on-three, three, we started playing our four-on-four four matches. And kind of the same thing happened. We were just winning our matches. We didn't lose any sets. Um, 
And then eventually we made it to the final where once again, we were playing team Iran and it was very clear that Iran had trained for on four before they had a good strategy against us. And we literally trained four on four for about two hours total before this tournament. Um, simply because we were coming from five different states and for us to try to meet ahead of time all in one location before traveling was practically impossible. Um, so yeah, we, the night before, a couple nights before we talked strategy, we talked about who would be good in what positions and why, uh, where people would stand on the court, what time of type of blocking position we might need to use. And, uh, our strategy was good enough to win. Um, there was more coaching that was needed in four-on-four four than three-on-three. Three. I was able to sit back in three-on-three three and do a lot of clapping and a lot of, yes, that's it. In four-on-four, four, Iran beat us in the very first game. Right away, they took it to us, and they were employing a technique uh, called a triple back block. So when our spiker would kind of go upside down and try to kick over the net, they would stack three of their players side by side at the net, and they would all face their backs to our team, and they would jump up together. And effectively, they would raise the level of the net from five feet up to about seven and a half feet high. And our spikers couldn't deal with that. We didn't know how to spike that high. Um, so that's when I had to do some coaching and I had to say, you know, I called the timeout, brought the team over and said, we've got to figure out like, this isn't going to work. We can't spike through their block. It's, you know, five and a half feet wide and way too tall for us. So we've got to change our strategy here. So we, we swapped out the spikers and uh, I told my feeder, you can't set the ball to the middle of the court. That's where it's easiest to be blocked. So now we've got, you've got to play around. And, you know, you, obviously he can't tell the, the spiker where he's going to set it ahead of time. Um, he, has to, he just has to make a snap decision. I'm going to put it this way. I'm going to put it low. I'm going to put it high. I'm going to put it to the right. And wherever the set goes, I yelled at the spiker, you just got to spike it. You can't think. You just run after it. You flip. You kill the ball. Um, and, but that was different from the strategy we had been employing, right? Where we were trying to set this perfect ball right in the middle, kind of floaty, where the spiker could be right underneath it and just do a flip kick. Um, that just wasn't working. We got blocked so many times. So yeah, we changed up the strategy and we won game two. So we were able to go to a decisive third set and uh, Kerr got us a bunch of points on serve. Um, Ure, our feeder from Nebraska, there's a term that we use called get being sticky. When you're sticky, it means that when the ball comes to you, you receive it very well with control as if it's not very hard for you, right? No matter how fast it is, you make it look easy. And so he was very sticky in game three. He made almost no mistakes. He, he received the ball. He set the ball perfectly. And our spiker just, we, we basically broke their triple back block. So they went away from that strategy and they went back to an, an, a strategy that was easier for us to win points. And uh, we just never looked back. We won that third game. It was close. It was close. But uh, we had enough of a, a margin that we were able to win. And we had, I, I, 
five of our six players played in the final. So I tried to get everybody in there. Yeah. Um, in general, over the tournament, um, everybody got planned. The, the toughest part about being a coach was that I couldn't have everybody on the court. You know, it's like you develop a relationship with the players and you want them to play. You want them to have their moment to shine. But ultimately, it's not about friendship. It's about winning the tournament. And I just kind of had to go with my gut. And, uh, you know, at times I would yank my best friend, Jim Tao from California. And I was like, dude, you just, you were off. Your timing was just a little bit off. Relax a little bit. I'll try to put you in again. But for now, the sky's going in. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it felt a little bit bad at times. But I think that's what a coach has to do, right? It's all about winning. It's not about making people feel good. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah get, it, it all worked yeah. out. It's not the summer rec league. It's you're there. I mean, it's the big time. So you, you got to yeah. do what you think is right and go with it. Um, that's cool. What surprises me is that you got USA and Iran, two countries where I wouldn't have thought this sport was really big at all. Right. Um, yeah. So teams like Thailand, Malaysia, kind of let's call it the old school uh, teams. They 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 weren't up there. huh? No, they were. Okay, ah. so I will explain. In in this tournament, there were two. Oh. Um, there were sort of two divisions that were that were played, and teams were assigned to divisions. So the there were basically a, like six or seven countries that had they have a ton of government support. You know, millions of dollars are devoted towards training athletes. They're government funded. They've got coaching staff. So Thailand, Malaysia, Korea, countries like that with, you know, 30 years of world champion status. Those are the types of countries um, that were in the premier division. Our team, to be honest, cannot compete with them. Ah. Even if we had three of our best, if we could kind of multiply Kerr Cha, which is our best player, and put three of him on the court, Unfortunately, we would still get wiped out because they have super athletes. Uh, you know, when they have training camps, they have a thousand athletes who are, are signing up to try to earn a spot where there's only six or seven players. They can choose the best of the best. These people who are just, they have the vertical leap of somebody like Michael Jordan or Spud Webb, but then they have like a gymnastics background. It's like in their blood and they have the best coaching they train professionally for this game. And meanwhile, in the US, you know, we're, we have desk jobs or we work construction or something like that. And we're training on the weekends outdoors in grass with no coaching. So we were placed in division one because the, the staff, the International Federation felt like that's where we would have the best chance to have some sort of successful showing. Yep. It was not known whether we were going to win first, second, third, or dead last, but that's where they wanted us to be playing, and that's where we played. So Iran was that other top-tier team in our division. Iran could have been in Premier. Um, they wouldn't have won but maybe they could have handled it. They, they did have a, a higher caliber of athlete, people with a little more training. Again, they had, you know, a hundred or so athletes from which to select their six. Um, so they, they did have options. 
Um, but yeah, I guess just when it counted, we did enough to win those matches. But yes, Thailand, Malaysia, still the okay. best. Korea still would whoop us. There's quite a few so, countries that we cannot match with yet. So what 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 were the teams that were in um your division? Where were in the US's uh, division? Bangladesh, Germany, Nepal. Iran, obviously. There was one more team. Okay, so the I traditional Southeast Asia hotbed countries were in that other division for the most part then it sounds exactly like. yeah. basically the teams that have a ton of government support and a ton of money where the government helps to grow these athletes and support yeah. them those teams just play at another level because there's investment in that uh in that sport yeah. and here in the u.s we don't have any investment at all you know we're entirely self-funded at this point in time yeah, yeah it's, it's not at the level of some of the other Olympic sports for the U.S. Like, well, I know this isn't an Olympic sport yet. Swimming and these other ones that have federations with some kind of budget. Um, right. So with that, I mean, what is the future of, of this sport in the U.S.? And, and will this ever be an Olympic sport? Yes. Yeah, so right now, the International Sepak Takra Federation is making a big push, meeting with the Olympic Committee, uh, meeting with the NOC and they're implementing all sorts of new protocols within our international caliber events. They're drug testing randomly, different players from different teams. Um, there are still some standards that we are not yet achieving, which we are working systematically uh, towards achieving. Um, and I think the push is to get Olympic recognition by the next Summer Olympics, which does not mean Olympic inclusion, but yep. to be recognized by the Olympics as a sport, which may be on its way. So I would say, yes, in my lifetime, we'll definitely see this sport be in the Olympics. Um, but right now, you know, it's still not played on an equal level worldwide. It's in Canada. It's in Brazil. It's in the United States. It's in Australia. It's in many European countries. It's all over Asia and sub-Saharan Africa, India but not at a level um, where there's high enough quality or caliber talent that it's super competitive. All the competitive teams are really just from one corner of the earth, which is you know Southeast Asia. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. Here in the United States, we have um, a nonprofit, which is a, it's a 501c3. It's called Sepatakra of USA Inc of which I'm actually a board member. Um, and we are working to kind of grow and promote the sport, to do demonstrations, offer uh, assemblies to teach kids, try to you know get the game into parks and recs, um, offerings and programming, because we want, we want as many eyes as possible to see it. United States would probably be pretty good at this game if we had athletes that were you know taller than five foot two. Sorry to say, but a lot of Hmong people are very short. Um, if we had, you know, we converted a basketball player who is six threes, he'd be really good at serving, even if he wasn't very flexible. Um, so we're really trying to make a push to kind of broaden the people who play this game and introduce it to more people. We need a lot of structure, a lot of organization. Um, we have plans for that, but again, we need money in order to kind of implement those plans. So slowly but surely, we're working towards it. 
we'd like to get some leagues going. Um, I'm hoping in 2023 to put together the first uh, U.S. professional series of tournaments. We'll call it a, a circuit. Yeah. It would be four tournaments that are held in the Midwest, along with a fifth uh, tournament to be held in Minnesota, the, the hotbed of the sport. And that would be the national championship. And so at these four tournaments, we'd have people earning ranking points so that we can appropriately seed for that final tournament. Um, and, you know, we try to offer as big a prize money as we can come up with something like, you know, 5,000 bucks for uh, first and second place. And, you know, that's not something that's happening right now. We have tournaments, but they're sort of in the grass, backyard events. People don't know about them. It, they're just the local people who compete against each other. Um, so we really need to, to organize a bit more. And so we're going to try to host these events in as public uh, a venue as possible. Um, yeah, just so that more eyes can see the game, be exposed to it. And so that's what I'll be working on along with development of a women's national team this year. So we, we are going to get an invitation to King's Cup in Thailand. And for the first time in a long time, the United States will look to fill out a, a full team, which is going to be maybe as many as 15 players. Oh, wow. And then along with that, we'll try to bring a women's team, not, not the full 15, but we have probably about five or six interested in women right now. And I'm working on um, getting them the equipment, giving them nets, and we'll work on setting up some training camps to get them up to speed. And hopefully it'll be, it'll be the first time in 20 years that any U.S. women have gone to Thailand to try and compete at the King's Cup. Yeah, that's good. Right. So if somebody out there wants to get involved in this sport, where could they find information? Is there any directory of leagues? I, I've seen it like back behind the temple type of, you know, tournaments and stuff. But yeah. is there any way for people to find out how they could get involved in the sport? Yeah, so I would say that the best way right now is we have a, a page on Facebook, uh, Sepak Takra of USA Inc. That would be spelled S-E-P-A-K-T-A-K-R-A-W, two words, Sepak Takra of USA. If you type it in the search function for Facebook, our group will come up, um, you know, we'll approve you. If you want to become a new member, you answer like two questions. And then you have the ability to post and ask questions or say, hey, I'm from Iowa. Is there anybody that plays this game near me? I'd love to okay. learn. Um, and there, I think there's like 27,000 members or followers of our organization on Facebook. Many of those are supporters of the USA that are not physically living in the USA. We have a lot of people from the Philippines, from Malaysia, from Thailand, all over who, who follow what we do and the growth and the development of our sport. But there are you know, thousands of people in the United States who are also part of that. And they, they would be eager to say, oh, I'm in Des Moines. Oh, I'm in Omaha. Here, connect with me. I'll show you where we play. That'd be the easiest way. Yeah, well, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. We've, we've enjoyed having you on. Co, any closing remarks or questions here? No, I mean, it was, it was great because you know, it gave us an opportunity for our viewers to learn more about the sport. Now, I, I mean, I remember seeing it when I was like a kid as well, growing up, you know, growing up in Chicago. Um, but, 
you know, you never saw any type of like uh, organized type of competition. Right? right. So I think, I think, you know, what you're doing here is great. I mean, for the first year, you know, for you as a head coach for the first year, Hey, yeah. You can only pretty get cool. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing to say to the viewers, yeah. if you were having trouble kind of visualizing what it looks like, there's millions of videos that you can, you can see on YouTube. All you have to do is type into the search bar, Takra, just the short name, T-A-K-R-A-W. And it's going to bring up amazing high quality videos, slow-mo videos of players doing just, you know, mind-blowingly athletic movements and kicking the, this ball unbelievably. Yeah. It's, it's definitely Olympic level in terms of the skill uh, the flexibility, the coordination that it takes to be yes. great at this game. So it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it, I tell I you, I've next, watched ne Next year with the tournaments, I think it would be a great place for you to be recruiting people, huh? We're just seeing Absolutely. some talents around the country. So yeah, yeah, it's going to get Absolutely. people out of the woodworks and, and get noticed. That's the goal. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks so much, Jeremy, for coming on. Thank you, everybody, yeah, thank for you, listening man. to uh, another episode of the C4 Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, IG. Check out the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame as well, laoamericansports.com. All right, thanks so much, everybody. The C4 Podcast is brought to you by the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame. Visit us on the web at laoamericansports.com, celebrating the first, inspiring the next.